Ortega, Ortega was a boozy beggar who could think you under the table. David Hume could have consumed Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. And Wittgenstein was a beery swine who was just a schlock to schlagel. There's nothing Nietzsche wouldn't teach about the raising of the wrist. Socrates himself was permanently pissed. John Stuart Mill on his own free will, on half a bottle of shandy was particularly ill. Later they say he could sing it away, half a bread of whiskey every day. Aristotle, Aristotle was a bugger for the bottle, Hobbes was fond of his dram. And Rennie Descartes was a drunken fart, I drink therefore I am. Yes, Socrates himself is particularly missed. A lovely little thing about a bugger when he's pissed. Okay, with that out of the way. <laughs> hey guys, welcome back to Panastoria. Uh, Jonah here. And Lindsay. Just a quick announcement. Uh, you, I'll, you'll already know this, but the Patreon is all launched. So go check that out. There will be a link in on the Facebook page. So go check it out. Yeah, if you like what we're doing, we do appreciate any kind of financial support so that this can be better. Exactly. So we don't have to do the... We promise that we're not just like pocketing it for food money. No. I mean, that's kind of partially it, but... We like to eat. It's yeah, fine. we do. It's fine. And, uh, but we will be using it to buy new equipment, and we, so we don't have to do a high five every single... Stay tuned for the awesome boomerang video that we just took of that. <laughs> um, also means we can purchase better music, potentially. Yeah, exactly. Because, so. you know, sometimes the free stuff's kind of questionable. Well, uh, I'm sure... Past couple episodes, uh, I'm sure you guys are getting sick and tired of my voice. I'm getting sick and tired of my voice. So today, me too. God, no, I'm just kidding. Thanks, Lindsay. Thanks. I got your back. It's fine. That's a yellow card. Um, <laughs> today, Lindsay's going to be taking the reins, and she's going to be discussing something that is very close to her heart. Would you like to explain what you're talking about? Yeah. So Jesus, take the wheel. I'm taking the lead. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Did It'll you be just fine. Just compare yourself to Jesus. No. Just saying that this could be <laughs> rocky. Um, <laughs> just kidding. It's going to be fine. As you probably all know, because I've referenced a few times, my background is actually a lot more in philosophy than it is in history. Although I do have a minor in history, so I'm not completely unqualified to talk about this. <laughs> anyway, uh, so today we're actually going to talk about the scientific revolution and how it relates to modern philosophy or Western philosophy. Um, so it is kind of going to be a, a little bit of a history of philosophy, at least in that time period. So uh, the first philosophy pun of today is that today's episode is called A Podcast Concerning Human Understanding. Hopefully you'll get the joke a little bit later when I get to it. But if you get it now, bonus points. <laughs> um, anyway, the this topic became interesting to me. Uh, in my undergrad, actually, I had to take a history class with uh, Dr. Annie St. John Stark, who, shout out if you're listening, Annie, because you were the bomb. Anyway, this class was really interesting because it was, it was a cross-listed history and philosophy class where we talked about just different ideas and technology changes kind of in medieval times, like medieval to enlightenment, like that kind of period, which that sort of period during philosophy or during like philosophical history, really, until the scientific revolution happened, it was like... Not really the Dark Ages, but like kind of the Dark Ages. Not a lot really happened. It was mostly theological history, or sorry, philosophy, and controlled largely by the church. So it's considered to have taken place between 1543 and 1687. Uh, obviously, dates like this are really fluid and kind of ridiculous to put a real date on them. But those dates are considered the beginning and the end based on two books. So what, the book that ushered in the revolution was uh, 
De Revolutionis Orbium Celestium, or On the Revolutions of the Celestial Spheres by Nicholas Copernicus. And on the other side of it, what kind of is thought to have ended the scientific revolution and moved us forward into the period of reflection was uh, the publication of Principia by Isaac Newton. Some of the people I'm going to end up talking about in a little bit happened a little bit after the scientific revolution, I guess, if you consider these hard dates. But ultimately, as anybody who knows anything about history knows, uh, dates in history are pretty fluid. Especially like, that far back. Yeah, I mean, any anytime you're talking about a big, great period, like period of time, uh, you know, like the Victorian period, for instance, has yeah. a way more fluid date than people like to give it. So, well, it's space. It's either <laughs> there's arguments of whether it's when Victoria was born and when she started to reign, but I think well, and even when it ends, like sometimes yeah. things we talk about considering the end are actually really in the Edwardian period. Yeah, that's true. Like they, the, the the beginning and ends are always a little bit fluid. So especially the end, especially especially the end of a period like that, because it flows so much into the next. You can clearly see where like that they picked up the the mantle from the previous. Beginning and the end of World War Two. That's pretty fluid. Yeah. The beginning and the end of the scientific revolution or the Renaissance or the yeah. industrial a lot revolution. More, a lot more fluid. Yeah. Um. Anyways, scientific revolution was a big deal, as we all know, but the most important reason why that was a thing is because it was in this period that science began to split a little bit from the Catholic Church, and ultimately the adoption of the scientific method became a thing. So unless, in case you're not aware of what the scientific method is, uh, it's an empirical method of knowledge acquisition involving careful observation where you formulate a hypothesis via inductive reasoning. So you see some things and think, well, okay, maybe there's a correlation. So that becomes your hypothesis. And then you do some experimental testing and then refinement of that hypothesis based on that on the findings. So what you find might not be in line with that hypothesis, and that's okay. You can just refine it and keep going. Um, these are obviously just sort of the principles behind the method. Every every science has like a you know a different actual step-by-step method, but the scientific method was really important because it it changed how science was done ultimately before science was engaged in like purely Aristotelian logic, which meant it was very like deductive, which makes sense, except that there wasn't a lot of actual observation or experiment going on. But uh, anyway, the scientific revolution is interesting for a few reasons, but I guess importantly, it just changed the way that people conducted themselves in trying to acquire knowledge. And in this period, science as we know it split. Well, science as we know it actually became science as we know it. Um, Several disciplines actually emerged from this period, like mathematics and well, not even really mathematics, but like the sciences, so chemistry and biology and physics, before they were really just all merged as one and they became separate. But this change of thinking, I guess, it had a ripple effect by one, creating those those fields, but two, it had a ripple effect on things like philosophy, which obviously have existed for thousands of years. I guess on that note, it's important to know about philosophy that it ultimately is the first discipline. So philosophers are the people we're the first people to work in things like mathematics and the sciences and social science and I guess what we now know as philosophy. But this isn't to be arrogant, though it kind of is. Uh, but philosophy is is really important. Uh, so suck it, universities who are trying to cancel those programs. Bias. I know. She has a very major bias. I know. But I hey, too, but... Your, your PhD is a doctorate in philosophy. So like, is it a bias? I don't know. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Uh, my my background in philosophy isn't really actually in the history of philosophy, but this project was really interesting to me. So the scientific revolution, I think, at least in my humble opinion, uh, is a good place marker in the history of philosophy, just because it splits philosophical history into two major sections, which is before the scientific revolution and after. 
whether or not actual historians of philosophy do that is probably quite kind of questionable, but like, that's how I think of it. Prior to the scientific revolution, philosophy was different than what we think of now. When we think of philosophy, or at least when most people think of philosophy, they think of stuffy professors sitting in the ivory tower thinking about abstract shit that might not really have an effect on people. Smoking weed. So much weed. <laughs> uh, also so much wine. And, uh, Panastoria is 420 friendly. Are you happy now? Yeah, you should be. <laughs> uh, actually, in fact, I hope you're still listening to this. But anyway, um, <laughs> we we think that philosopher we think of philosophers as very like separate from from things that I don't know from the everyday, I guess. But ultimately, they do actually tackle really important things, like just regarding human knowledge and the types of moral responsibilities people should have, or how just societies should work, political theories, and so on and so forth. Philosophers have always been tackling these subjects. I mean, Plato and Pythagoras and people before them ultimately were tackling these questions, and it's continued on. I mean, we still study Plato because Plato raised some interesting questions that we still haven't really been able to answer. Yeah, they've always been tackling these large subjects, but prior to the scientific revolution, philosophers were all kind of known as natural philosophers. So natural philosophy is a little bit more of an integrated approach rather than like all the specialized subjects that we know of. So kind of goes back to the first discipline thing where philosophy really encompassed all things. Philosophy wasn't just philosophy. It was also physics. It was also history. It was also math. So philosophers like Pythagoras, Aristotle, Galileo, and so on, uh, are famous for their contributions in other fields, but also in philosophy. I mean, we know Pythagoras, I think, largely because of the Pythagorean theorem in math. We know Aristotle as much because of his philosophy as we do for his ideas in biology and the different experiments he tried to conduct. Uh, Galileo, obviously. uh -huh. You know, kind of famous. It's fine. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, this is obviously in contrast to what we refer to as philosophy now. I think most people don't think of, I guess, when we think of modern, modern philosophy is kind of a hilarious term in a way too, because it actually encompasses like really all the way back into like the early, like late 18 and early 1900s. Like that's pretty, that's considered modern philosophy, which I think is hilarious, but. Well, you don't really see a lot of new philosophies coming out today the most i mean there are but it's like you have to be looking for it philosophy just holds such a like less important role in i guess society in a sense that it used to so you know people don't pay as much attention to new works of philosophy coming out whereas you know for instance people like camus and jean-paul sartre they know they had big followings and so they people followed that but anyway obviously it's a bit of a contrast to what we think of um, and so in this point, the scientific revolution kind of spurs this change in philosophy where it moves into what we kind of know more as philosophy. And I guess I'm just going to make a really important note here. When I refer to like what we currently think of as philosophy or like most people in the North America, in North America, Western Europe, in the Western world think of philosophy, we're thinking of Western philosophy, which is very specific to like the European tradition and even the American tradition later on too. Uh, it doesn't really reference Eastern philosophy. Um, but it's important to note that like the Chinese have been doing philosophy for just as long as the Greeks. When philosophy reached its kind of dark age period during the medieval times, that was really only a dark age in Western philosophy because there was a ton of philosophy happening in the Islamic world. The um, Islamic world is ultimately the reason why we actually can read Plato now. They're the ones who found all of those old texts and translated them and then we're able to have all that knowledge. So when I'm referring to philosophy here, I'm mostly referring to Western philosophy because that's the tradition that I was trained in and what most people in North America and Europe have been trained in. But 
still. So yeah, when we think of subjects and special, we think of subjects like in a specialized term. So when we think of sciences, we think of the specialties in science. We think of physics. We think of chemistry. We think of biology, um, astronomy, whatever. I'm sure there's other sciences. I'm not a scientist. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we tend to think of them as like mutually exp- mutually exclusive um, from things like the humanities. We don't think of philosophy and science as really going together, but they do have the same origins. Newton is a fairly prime example of that compatibility in that he you know, had questions about how the world worked and then also did science to sort it out. The idea, this idea of thinking in specializations actually really began in the scientific revolution because that's probably a fairly kind of an unsubstantiated claim, but it's generally been landed on that um, prior to the scientific revolution, we didn't really think about physics as being separate from philosophy, but it's definitely now separate. This new era, I guess, of philosophy is definitely a big contrast to in the medieval period where everything was really just controlled by the Catholic Church. As this really funny video that we were watching before we recorded this called it the philosophy, which is really just (laughs) philosophy with a capital P. And that just really means the religious doctrine, which dictated most of how humans thought and move forward with things. And this was really based heavily on Aristotle's philosophy. And funny thing about that, though, is ultimately like Aristotle wasn't a Catholic. So kind of funny how they they kind of adopted and bastardized his ideas, I suppose. I don't know. But everyone thought along this line for a long time. And then all of a sudden there was some separation. And uh, that was kind of a problem for the church for a while there. And I'll, I'll, that'll, that'll kind of keep, keep coming up. That's going to be a theme. So with that babbling introduction, I'm just going to dive into some uh, some stuff here. It's not going to be in, chronicle, in chronological order how I'm going to talk about this because it doesn't need to be really. Um, I'm basically just going to discuss a few important figures from this, uh, this time period. And like some of the names you're probably going to recognize and hopefully you might learn something new about them. Or maybe you won't recognize them and you'll learn entirely new things. Sounds like we're really good at chron- chronology in this already. I mean, the Crusade episodes. I yeah. Who kept- knew? Kept fucking forgetting what years. Who needs chronology? It's not really that important. And I think that actually it's like a fair point. Like history doesn't always need to be done chronologically. I don't think. I mean, especially if you're doing something like this, where really I'm talking about the history of ideas here. I mean, it's not. It's a fluid thing. History. It's yeah. Chronology helps, but really just for organizational purposes, not because it's. It makes a big difference. It It doesn't need to be in chronological order to understand. Yeah, I'm going to discuss a few important figures in the process. Uh, I'm going to learn you some of their ideas because you should probably know them. Learn you. I'm going to learn you. I'm really good at I'm really good at English today. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, but these people are important to the field of philosophy, but also really important to other things that still impact your life, whether or not you know it. So yeah, in other words, I'm just going to talk about the people and their ideas and why they matter. Um, pay attention. There's a quiz later. <laughs> So, first on the docket is everyone's favorite Polish astronomer, Nicholas, Nicholas Copernicus. Uh, so, Copernicus was, uh, yeah, he was one of the first people to conceive and adopt the heliocentric model of the universe, because heliocentrism is for the cool kids. Um, if you don't know what that is, <laughs> the heliocentric model is where the Earth and the planets revolve around the sun and not the other way around. Take that, flat earthers. Right? Apparently that's a thing now. Don't understand. If you listen to this podcast, we're just... Like, you can't be a flat I'm sure anyone listening to this podcast agrees with us. I would hope so. Anyway, as I mentioned earlier, and the, the whole idea of people think of the geocentric model, uh, where the Earth is in the center and the sun revolves, that also was kind of an Aristotelian thought that the church just held on to forever. But Copernicus helped usher in this period with the publishing of his book, 
the Revolutionibus Orbum Celestium. My Latin is terrible. I'm sorry. Um, in this book, so in this book, he proposed the heliocentric model as well as made some other predictions about how, about the Earth's rotation and movement around the, the solar system. And at this point, it's kind of incredible, actually, that Copernicus comes up with this stuff because there's no way for him to actually prove anything that he comes up with because the telescope hasn't been invented yet. Invented yet. So he has actually no physical way of, I mean, there's some physical way, but no solid way to provide evidence for any of his claims. But it turns out that a lot of them actually end up being accurate. The heliocentric model is actually true. Again, sorry, flat earthers, not sorry. Copernicus ultimately had a really strong hypothesis. The funny thing about Copernicus's book is that it was published posthumously. This is because Copernicus, probably rightfully, feared the church and didn't really want to deal with that um, whole situation because the Catholic church still ruled everything and would ruin your life. So it was the last laugh. From Copernicus? Like, yeah, I guess. Dead, yeah. You can't do nothing about this now? I guess. And the reason for why the church would actually push back against this, I mean, it seems kind of ridiculous to think, well, why would the church complain about a new idea on how the earth moves? Well, and the earth and sun move, sorry. The reason for that is that the church obviously explained how things worked to people. They were the source of everyone's knowledge. And so somebody challenging that was number one problematic. Um, There's passages in the Bible that say affix the earth and the earth shall not move i don't know exact locations but they do it does say in the bible the earth is fixed and does not move yeah so you're obviously just challenging the authority of the church as well as the bible um but the other problem too ultimately and i think this probably stems from that bible passage um is that the geocentric model provided man with a cosmic power gifted to them by gifted to them in christian theology so in the bible whereas um the heliocentric model challenges that so if the earth in fact orbits around the sun, then man loses that cosmic power. And therefore, like, yeah, if man isn't at the center, then it questions not only the ideas being distilled by the church, but also the credibility of the church itself. And needless to say, they're not stoked about that. So, uh... Wonder why? Right? Yeah. Um, there's some debate, though, whether the delay of Copernicus's book was actually due to religious, potential religious blowback, or because he was concerned about um, philosophical or astronomical objections but either way it was published after he died and despite the fact that it was published posthumously it didn't actually diminish the importance of what he introduced because frankly no one actually paid attention to copernicus for a while um but <laughs> after they started to people like tycho brahe or brahe kepler and galileo they eventually built on his works and proved the ones that were actually sound because not all of them were i mean any hypothesis is usually a little bit out to lunch but at the start, I mean, that's how ideas work, right? You think something might work the way it does. Turns out it doesn't, but you tried. I mean, it's not like Copernicus had really great technology to try and figure this shit out. Let's be real. So, What, what time frame was this around? Copernicus? Um, so Copernicus was in the 60s, or the book was published in 1641. Okay. So, you know, not a whole lot of technology to work with. No. Yeah, so he had some limitations to deal with, but people like Galileo, Kepler, Brahe, they took up his mantle and were like, hey, maybe there's something to what Copernicus had to say, and they pushed it. No one wanted to believe him at first, which I suppose makes sense. If you can't prove it, why bother changing? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, when you kind of have this fixed uh, learn way of learning and this fixed belief in you for how, how like even just like, certain people today have yeah start believing something two years ago and they'll defend it to the death. I mean, dogmatism is like a real thing and it's difficult to break with. I mean, it's not that easy. It's easy to say that you're not dogmatic and actually still be dogmatic. Exactly. My, what my point is, is that imagine uh, that, but you've been, le you, you've been learning and your previous generations have been learning the same thing for 
hundreds of years. Yeah. And all of a sudden, someone comes along and challenges it. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense that no one believed him at first. Um, actually, for quite a long time. Ultimately, Galileo is the one who took up Copernicus, like what he had to say. So the thing about Galileo is that he became famous for ultimately proving the heliocentric model, but he's not the one who came up with it. <laughs> um, although he did take all of the punishment. The reason that Galileo was able to fortunately swoop in and save the day on heliocentrism sorry, is that Galileo invented and had access to the, the telescope, which enabled him, or enabled him, words are really hard, uh, enabled him to observe the sun, moon, and planets. And so he was able to see that all the celestial bodies um, were orbiting around the sun. He also managed to find mountains on the moon, and that really just pissed off the church. But it sounds a lot like a scientific method, right? Because it was. So <laughs> Copernicus didn't actually really add that much to philosophy itself outside of the natural philosophy he was conducting in astronomy, but he ultimately ushered in a great period of change where people began to question more seriously how things worked. So the very fact that he was willing to challenge the church even after he had died was a sign that like, hey, maybe, you know, maybe he is right. That maybe there is something to this theory and maybe there's something to other theories that aren't. Maybe there's something to this idea of challenging what the church is saying Aristotle said. Turns out what Aristotle said was actually really not what the church was saying at all. So, you know, even challenging that, big deal. <laughs> Astronomers and other natural philosophers began to make advances uh, in their discoveries about the natural world with the use of the scientific method. And, like, the scientific method seriously pissed off the church, and even when they tried to use it, they tried to use it against actual scientists, and it didn't work, which I think is kind of happening now still. Religious people like to try and use, quote, science, like air quotation science, to try and disprove science. It's really strange. But anyways, these their discoveries about the new natural, like the natural world, helped to nurture the theoretical side of philosophy as well, because it allows us, the more information that these people took in about just how the world worked meant that bigger and bigger questions about how the world worked began to be asked. And so they're asking bigger questions, so they're trying to search for bigger answers, and they worked separately but together. And theoretical philosophy was also needing that, in need of that progression too, because, I mean, after Aristotle, pretty much nothing happened for a while. I mean, there was Aquinas and some other medieval philosophers, but ultimately all they tried to do was prove the existence of God, and they were very religious people. So most philosophy was pretty much just theologically based, which is fine, I suppose, but there weren't a lot of contributions. It was quite a dead period for Western philosophy. So this, this, this pushing forward, I guess, of natural philosophy helped the theoretical side because it meant that people started thinking about other things, <laughs> I guess. But even though Copernicus, so even though Copernicus died and his book was released after that, his challenges towards the dogmatic way of thinking were ultimately just the most important legacy of Copernicus. Not even the discovery of heliocentrism because he couldn't prove it. It's just the idea that he even was bold enough to propose it. After his death? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know. I, I, wouldn't, don't, I don't blame him whatsoever. I don't really blame him either. If that's why he delayed it, then I actually don't blame him for that. I mean, it's possible that he, that's not why, but... Like, chances are good, that's why. <laughs> um, the last thing I will say about Copernicus, actually, that's kind of funny, is that just because he challenged the conventional way of thinking doesn't mean he wasn't actually religious himself, because, fun fact, his book, um, the Latin words I'm going to butcher, are that I did butcher already, sorry, um, he dedicated that book to Pope Paul III. <laughs> so, like... Whether or not that was just to basically like soften the blow when it came out, or because he actually was just really religious, is it's debatable. But like, I think it's funny. Um, Another big fuck you. Kind of. I don't know. <laughs> uh, 
But yeah, I'm going to skip ahead over some sciencey things and get to some philosophy bits here. This is officially where like the scientific revolution started to impact philosophy because during this period, the theory known as empiricism started to make an appearance. And empiricism is ultimately what Galileo was doing when he was observing, using the telescope to observe. So empiricism is a theory that states that knowledge comes only or primarily from sensory experience. And it's one of several views of epistemology. And epistemology is basically a big fancy philosophical word for the study of human knowledge. So rationalism, skepticism, and empiricism are all sort of things within, within epistemology. And I'll talk about a little bit of each of them um, in relation to the people who made those theories famous because they're all ultimately really connected. Empiricism emphasizes the role of empirical evidence in the formulation or in the formation of ideas over the idea of innate ideas or traditions. So Galileo was forming like new ideas based on what he was seeing, not based on ideas that things that had been distilled to him previously about how the world worked. He tried to kind of push that out and observe new things. So empiricism was kind of between both philosophy and natural philosophy or science. Um, so when I'm referring to it in terms of philosophy, I'm referring to British empiricism, actually. That distinction didn't actually exist at the time. This was all just empiricism, but it's an important distinction now just to keep things straight because that's a little bit difficult at times. It's a, it's a distinction that just basically classifies and describes the differences between two of its founders, Francis Bacon and Rene Descartes. Bacon was an empiricist, Descartes a rationalist, but both of them ultimately were empiricist overall. Like think of empiricism as like a big cloud and then it branches into like British empiricism and rationalism and skepticism. They're all ultimately empiricist. It's really confusing and weird, but when I refer to empiricism, henceforth, it'll be British empiricism. I'm going to talk about Descartes in a bit. Bacon, I'm probably really only just going to reference in passing because whatever. Bacon. Yeah. Anyway, so the first empiricist is uh, David Hume. He's not actually the first empiricist, but he's the first empiricist I'm going to talk about. Um, <laughs> he's the influential Scottish philosopher, womanizer, and mortal, em mortal enemy of Immanuel Kant. They had some serious beef. It seems there's always some sort of drawback with people. Like, oh, they're a super intelligent person, but God Damn, he couldn't keep his hands off a woman. Yeah, he liked liked a good orgy. He was uh <laughs> he was yeah. Yeah. And we I just mean, lost our PG rating. I mean I'm not saying that he <laughs> he was a womanizer in a bad way necessarily, but like he liked to party. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, along with that, and also just like making Emmanuel Kant miserable for the, his whole life, Hume contributed to philosophy in a number of fields. His major contribution to philosophy was pissing off Immanuel Kant and even causing Immanuel Kant to write anything he wrote. But in the process, Hume wrote about things in ethics, aesthetics, and epistemology. Because we're talking about the scientific revolution and like sciencey things, we're henceforth going to talk about epistemology because that's ultimately what epistemology is even dealing with. When we're talking about knowledge, it's related to science. Like, how do we know the things that we're figuring out in science? Don't piss me off. Sorry. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. What? I don't know. That was uncalled for. Anyway, <laughs> his main work on the subject is the treatise of human nature. Um, <laughs> wow. I'm trying I'm to keep... cut that out probably, but you or, continue. Or you can leave it. But anyway, the treatise of human nature, Hume's book. So uh, philosophical historian Frederick Copleston wrote that Hume's aim was to apply the science of man uh, or sorry, the science of man to the method of experimental philosophy. So basically take the scientific method and apply that to philosophy and how we think about things. His plan was to, quote, extend to philosophy in general the methodological limitations of Newtonian physics, end quote. The most central doctrine of his philosophy is this notion that the mind consists of its mental perceptions or 
the mental objects which are present to it and which divide into two categories, impressions and ideas. So Hume opens his treatise with the words, quote, all the perceptions of the human mind resol- or resolve themselves into two distinct kinds, which I shall call impressions and ideas. Both have capitals because old English. Commentators have generally felt that Hume is referring to the difference between thinking and feeling, but that's kind of controversial. So concerning ideas, humans have two kinds of ideas. Quote, relations of ideas and matters of fact. Relations of ideas are simple and provable without any recourse to experience at all. So think of stuff like math. Five times four is always going to equal 20. It would be a contradiction of logic for it to not equal 20. Matters of fact require experience. These, there is no way you could reason your way to the sun rising or even to the existence of the sun without having some experience of the sun. But there's nothing in logic that says the sun has to rise tomorrow. Oh, this is like inductive reasoning? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So matters of fact really come to inductive reasoning. And I'm going to get to that because that's, that's kind of the crux of Hume's, Hume's argument is, right. is dealing with inductive reasoning. The, I guess the trippy part of this is that everything you think you know about cause and effect, which inductive reasoning mostly is cause and effect. So everything you think about, you, the, everything you think you know about cause and effect about the future itself is based on the assumption that everything in the future will always work the way it has in the past. And there is no way to prove that. You logically cannot prove that. And you also can't prove it using observation because ultimately that's what we're talking about right now. <laughs> so it's a circular argument to say that because everything has been the same, everything will remain the same. And this brings us to the argument that Hume is most famous for, which is the problem of induction. So Hume suggests that throwing out all knowledge about cause and effect isn't really necessary, even though the above thing about how we logically can't prove it should be enough to throw it out based on how philosophy worked in the past. Like, if you can't logically deduce this, then, like, well, it's not worth it, right? But he's like, well, maybe not. I mean, it's not logical, but it's still useful. Acting like cause and effect is a real thing has so far served everyone pretty well. I mean, we rely on that, right? We use inductive reasoning every single yeah. day, hundreds of so times like, a day. So like a good example, and um, actually this example comes from this website called Philosophy Bro, <laughs> which I found really useful. One, because it's really funny. <laughs> and two, because it essentially translates these famous arguments into really plain language and some obscenity for good nature, uh, or for good measure, sorry. But it, it helps drive home the point. Um, so this is the example that philosophy bro gives quote. So here's where we're at. You're in a bar with your bros pounding some brewskis when some asshole hits the cue ball the wrong way and the eight ball comes flying at your head. What do you do? Do you think, you know, there's no way I can know for sure that the eight ball could cause my skull to fucking fracture. After all, I can't know anything about the future. No, you don't even think that the ball has causal powers, which if it strikes me will have the effect of great pain. I should move. You get the hell out of the way. And after the ball whizzes past you, you make sure that dickhead knows better, better knows he better watch out next time. Why do you even get out of the way? Because you have formed a belief about cause and effect. Because you've seen it so many times. What if you put some, or what if some, you put some guy with no experiences in that spot? Does he move? No. He watches the ball all the way to unconsciousness. He doesn't know any better. I know that because I did it when I was six. So did you when you were a kid with no experiences playing catch with your father or whatever. You got hit in the head, cried your eyes out, put ice on it, and thought, so apparently getting hit in the head with shit causes pain. Fucking got it. It's not because you observed something in the ball that causes pain, but because getting hit in the head is always conjoined to the pain. They go hand in hand. They're always together. One billiard ball hits another. The other one has always moved. So when you see another one about to hit, you think, okay, I've seen this before. After that one hits, the other one moves. It's always happened this way. And if it didn't happen that way, you would be disappointed and surprised. Not because of any reasoning you carried out, just because that's not what you expected. 
So essentially what Philosophy Bro and Hume are saying is that the instincts and beliefs about cause and effect ultimately keep us alive and help us function. Without it, we wouldn't function. So since we don't know what knowledge is, or at least proving things in logical terms, leads us to know absolutely nothing, these instincts and and beliefs are in fact actually a good thing. Um, Hume was a skeptic, which meant that he believed knowledge was fallible and hard to know, obviously. We think we know something, but then it turns out we don't, and that's really not that helpful all the time. So as Philosophy Bro so eloquently put it, quote, if knowledge was all we had to go on, we'd be in deep shit indeed, end quote. But Hume also did other things, I guess, other than philosophy. That was just his main, his main gig. He also contributed pretty greatly to history, and in between seven, 1754 and 1762 published The History of England, which is a six-part volume, which extends from the invasion of Julius Caesar to the revolution in 1688. So Hume, Hume wrote a really big tome. <laughs> And it was interesting because Hume didn't actually really practice what's called great man history, which in a sense is kind of what I'm doing here. So great man history, for those who don't know, is basically just recounting history by telling stories about great big, big men. figures. Yeah, mostly great men. But big figures in things like kings, parliaments, armies, whatever. Hume didn't necessarily do that, though. He widened his, his focus to include literature and science, so... He is actually considered an early historian of science and wrote short biographies of leading scientists at the time and explored the process of scientific change. And I think I've read like excerpts of this um, from the history of England just because I was reading some articles that were related. Just just really quickly, every every single history major, I'm sure all the ones listening know Hume because every single history major, including myself, has had to read from that book. Yeah. And it's funny because like that's that's kind of the point I guess of this whole episode is that it doesn't matter your discipline you're probably going to recognize the person's name cuz like they did some good shit. But uh, I think that like the history of England is actually really neat regarding his like history of science aspects just because like it's always interesting to read stuff about a big period like the scientific revolution where they're writing about it as it happens and yet they're self-aware enough to know that it's happening. Like that happens very rarely when someone's living through a great period but they're smart enough or conscious enough to know that this is a big period that's happening. They might not be able to put all of it in words, but they know. Yeah, so I mean, he wrote over 40 of these biographies of scientists, but paid special attention to Bacon, uh, Robert Boyle, and Isaac Newton. Science and philosophy mangle. It's a thing. But uh, fun fact, though, is that Hume actually had some serious beef with Francis Bacon. (laughs) He didn't like Bacon at all. He uh, didn't consider him to be a true philosopher, gasp. Um, (laughs) It's kind of his... uh, his definition of true philosopher is a little bit like hard to nail down exactly. Even people like Galileo and Newton weren't true philosophers, but they were on the path. But Bacon was apparently just off in the sticks. I don't know. Not a fan. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Hume was an interesting character. Also liked to wear turbans, kind of, which <laughs> is like if you look up pictures of David Hume. Yeah, it's a bit strange. Don't really understand that. Anywho. It was a thing. It was a thing. It was a thing that happened. I guess Scotland during that period was very weird. I think the world during that period was very weird. That's probably accurate. Um, <laughs> anyway, next up, I'm going to kind of jump backwards, and or not really backwards, but I'm going to jump sideways to the rationalist side of empiricism. David Hume falls under the British empiricism side. Descartes is on the rationalist side of empiricism. And uh, Descartes is probably, of the people on this list, the most famous of any of them in a certain way, or at least the most famous across disciplines. And he's also given the lofty title of father of modern philosophy. So like no pressure or anything. My favorite, I guess, like Rene Descartes related piece of thing is uh, the, comes from the Monty Monty Python and their philosopher's song. Rene Descartes is a drunken fart. I drink, therefore I am. 
Greatest line ever. <laughs> that was very good. Link up, look up that song if you get the chance. It's hilarious. Actually, I'll probably just post it on Facebook later. Um, <laughs> but anyways, uh, in all seriousness, Descartes was actually a really extremely influential figure. Um, I mentioned him earlier when I discussed the separation of rationalism and empiricism, but we're actually going to talk about Descartes. So Descartes hailed from France, and I guess depending on who you talk to, some might say he's the last good thing the French ever contributed to the world. I'm not saying I agree with this. I'm just saying it's an argument that's been made. And we're going to leave it at that. <laughs> but Descartes kind of shook the philosophy world with his famous book, uh, Meditations on First Philosophy. And there's four, medi- five, five meditations. But anyways, what he did in this work uh, ultimately was he rejected Aristotle's way of thinking. He completely rejected Aristotle's thought and essentially took it, threw it in the trash heap and started over. <laughs> He's like, this isn't working. Nope. And started over. So in doing so, he developed the method of, of radical skepticism, which means that he took everything he thought he knew and tossed that off and decided to like work in reverse, figure out what he could actually put back on that table of knowledge, as it were. So if something did survive this extreme skepticism, then it must exist as a foundation for knowledge. So the first meditation of this book is him going through like literally everything he thinks he knows and putting it through the, the skepticism ringer. It's a whole book essentially about like, well, that can't be a thing I know. That also can't be a thing I know. And that can't be a thing I know. And then the second book actually is where things get kind of, the second meditation, sorry, is where things get a little bit more interesting. He actually discovers one thing that he knows, which is exciting. And it turns out that the thing he knows is actually himself. His, you know, he exists. That's, that's what he knows. He knows that he must exist because in order for him to be questioning the things that he's questioning, something has to exist to be questioning that, which means he exists. And then it leads to the most famous one-liner in history, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. And so by declaring the cogito, he has found at least one fragment of genuine human knowledge. Yay. (laughs) Um, This is important because it's at least obviously one piece of knowledge we know we exist. That's a good thing, right? Everything else Descartes got rid of, well, those are all beliefs. So everything else that we, we think we know about the world ultimately comes to things that we believe we know about the world. In clearing off his, I guess, table of knowledge. I don't really know else to put that. <laughs> Descartes realized that it was difficult to put much back on the table because none of it is actually really knowledge. But most of it is really just belief. Our minds exist and can think, but everything else is probably just belief and we don't really know about it. We don't know that it actually is knowledge. So to quote philosophy bro again, quote, what have we learned today? Well, it looks like I can be sure of myself and that I am a mind that thinks and knows, even if everything else, the cake and all, is a lie. Fuck yes. End quote. <laughs> Meditations three through five are interesting, not because they're actually as brilliant as the second. Because, like, I just really want to emphasize that the, the cogito is, frankly, a really brilliant argument. And if Descartes had just stopped there, it would be even better. <laughs> because he kind of ruined it with the rest. But the Cogito was a really huge moment in philosophy because he was, as this video that Jonah and I watched previous, kind of said, you know, between Galileo and Descartes, they pretty much just curb-stomped Aristotle's thought and left him for dead between the Cogito and and discovering the heliocentric model. Like, Aristotle just got wrecked. Um, <laughs> and so Descartes was, like, really important. This, this really matters. The Cogito is a really big deal, and not just for all of the really shitty bastardizations of I think, therefore, I am later on that, yeah. Everyone knows, but doesn't understand. But in Meditations 3 through 5, he doesn't make as brilliant of an argument, but Descartes actually kind of fucks it all up, and his reasoning is kind of questionable. But it's interesting, because in these meditations, Descartes uses the same reasoning that he used to prove his own existence to prove the existence of God. So needless to say, 
doesn't work out quite the same, and we end up with a circular argument, which, if anyone knows anything about logic, that's not what you want. <laughs> circular arguments don't prove shit. Anyways, his circular argument is that God proves the veracity of clear and distinct ideas. Clear and distinct ideas prove the existence of God. The end. So this circular argument is actually known as a Cartesian circle <laughs> and is obviously a problem because first, circular argument, bad. Second, though it is his first attempt to prove the existence, it's also his first attempt to prove the existence of anything outside of the self. So he proved that he, he exists and now he's trying to prove that something else exists. And it doesn't matter if he's trying to prove that God exists or like dogs exist. He's ultimately trying to prove something that exists outside of himself. And so if this fails then Descartes' hope for absolute human knowledge is kind of curtailed because now everyone is stuck not knowing if they can know anything for certain except their own existence. So thanks, Descartes, you asshole. But the fun thing about this argument is that it is clearly a bit of a stretch. <laughs> like, anyone reading it's kind of like, well, no, that's not how that works. <laughs> and it's, it's actually led to some, like, side discussion, not really about the philosophy itself so much as why it exists in the first place. <laughs> Because or this book was published in 1641, so again, yeah, I know I'm talking about Descartes after Hume, and that's not chronological, but shut up. Um, Descartes was French, and the Catholic Church had a very large hold over France, and still does. So it's a fairly <laughs> safe assumption that Descartes feared some kind of retribution for the Church for challenging um, not only Aristotle, but ultimately the all beliefs. I mean, he, he wasn't just challenging currently held beliefs, he's challenging like all beliefs, period, full stop. So since the church relies on people believing in things and beliefs, that was not going to be a good thing. You can see a problem. <laughs> so one theory is that Descartes decided to add the argument for the existence of God in order to appease the church and not end up like the next Galileo. Either that, or Descartes was actually religious and believed he could do what many had failed to do before him and prove the ex existence of God. So either he was trying to one-up Aquinas, or he was just trying to save his own ass. We're not really sure. I kind of like to go with the argument that he was just trying to save his own ass because I think Descartes was far too intelligent to make that kind of shitty argument for any reason other than, I don't feel like dying in prison, <laughs> or worse. So let's try this. <laughs> Even if it fails, they won't care, right? Right? Um... <laughs> But either way, it really wasn't that successful. But he was successful in a lot of other things, and you likely recognize more about Descartes than you think. The Cartesian coordinate system, also known as the Cartesian plane, that you learned about in math, that was Descartes. Exponents, also Descartes. The laws of refraction and reflection, definitely Descartes. So Descartes is kind of one of those dudes that is the quintessential jack-of-all-trades, except that he's a master of all and not none, apparently. But he kind of ex exemplifies what I talked about earlier in terms of this integrated approach of natural philosophy where he did all of it. The reason he's considered the modern, or the, sorry, the father of modern philosophy, though, is that at the same time that he made all of those scientific and mathematical discoveries, Descartes pushed theoretical and experimental philosophy to an entirely new level. He definitely moved things very, very forward very fast. And Descartes actually was often referred to as an armchair philosopher because he quite literally sat and contemplated this stuff. Like, the whole time he's writing the meditations, it's pretty much doing what philosophers do now where you sit and you think about shit. Like, and you, so you get up and you move to another spot and sit and think about shit. So his philosophy, yeah, he was an armchair philosopher, which that connection is, I guess, important because that's what we really just think of philosophy anyways as. So Descartes was the start, we'll say. But yeah, his philosophy is based on rational skeptical thought rather than observations purely or necessarily, which means his thought experiment was exactly that, purely in his head. <laughs> and uh, that's yeah, that's what we think about when we think of philosophy, which is definitely different than empiricism, which 
I'm about to get back to. British empiricism was very much about the opposite. It was all about thinking about our observations and how that has an impact on our knowledge. Which brings us to John Locke, who also super famous. Probably recognize his name for uh, other things. History majors, yeah, we'll know. We know John Locke. I think anyone in the humanities knows John Locke. Pretty much. Or should know John Locke. If you don't know John Locke and you're in the humanities, you need to try harder. Well, they're not, we all like them. It's up in the air. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll definitely get to that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, John Locke is actually like technically considered an enlightenment philosopher, but as we talked about at the beginning, dates are fluid, so he counts. (laughs) He matters. John Locke matters. So Locke, like Descartes, Kind of also has a lofty title, as he's considered the father of liberalism. (laughs) Love that or hate that. Um, His contributions to liberal theory are reflected in the U.S. Declaration of Independence. Also, love it or hate it, it's there. Uh, Also not what we're going to be talking about. (laughs) Maybe another time. (laughs) Well, you got to remember this is a different definition of liberalism. Well, like classical liberalism. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, I imagine we'll talk about John Locke in that capacity much later on. Definitely. Kind of hard to avoid. Locke's contributions to epistemology and British empiricism, though, were pretty much as important as his contribution to political theory. So in 1689, Locke published a famous book called An Essay Concerning Human Understanding, and there you go, that explains the pun of the title of the episode, if you needed that long to figure it out. Um, This book was actually kind of a clap back at people like Plato and Descartes and their ideas concerning, well, human understanding and knowledge. You know, the title kind of says it all, really. But unlike Plato and Descartes, Locke disagreed that there were such things as innate principles and ideas. And that was like his whole crusade was against this idea of innate ideas and principles. So according to him, every human starts with a blank slate, a tabula rasa. And everything we come to know is derived by experience. So he says in the essay, or I'm just going to refer to this book as the essay because it's a long title that I don't want to keep repeating. Um, So in the essay, he says, quote, let us suppose then the mind to be, as we say, white paper, void of all characters without any ideas. How comes it to be furnished? Once comes it by that vast store, which the busy and boundless of fancy of man has painted on it with an almost endless variety. Whence has it all the materials of reason and knowledge? To this I answer in one word, from experience, and that all our knowledge is founded and that it ultimately derives itself, end quote. Locke was a terrible writer, just so you know. It's impossible to read his shit. He just capitalizes things at will, and it's not even like, it's not even like just, oh, that's old English. It's like, no, that's old bad English. Any of our listeners getting flashbacks as well? Yeah. I sure am. If you ever end up having to read Locke in any of your pursuits, there's a really great website called um, Early Modern Texts, and it basically helps translate. (laughs) Really good website. Use it if you have to read Locke, because otherwise you're just going to get a giant headache and not know what the fuck is going on. (laughs) Um pretty much how that works. Anyways, in uh, the essay, book one is dedicated to Locke attempting to refute the rationalist, boo Descartes, notion of innate ideas. Book two sets out Locke's theory of ideas, including his distinction between passively acquired simple ideas and actively built complex ideas. So simple ideas are things like colors, tastes, and shapes. Complex ideas are things like numbers, cause and effect, abstract ideas, ideas of substance, identity, and diversity. So he separates them further into primary and secondary qualities. Primary qualities are qualities of bodies like shape and motion and the arrangement of minute particles. Secondary qualities are qualities that are, quote, powers to produce various sensations in us. So things like the color red or the taste of sweet, that kind of stuff. 
In this book, he also lays out his theory of personal identity, which is still really controversial, and honestly, I'm just not going to talk about it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, It's been a long time. I'm not crazy familiar with it, and also just don't care right now. In book three, he addresses language. Book four is concerned with knowledge, including intuition, mathematics, moral philosophy, natural philosophy, aka science, faith, and opinion. It's a pretty big, all-encompassing book. Hard to read, worth it, but really difficult. But interestingly, and this is actually kind of my point on Locke, as much as his idea is important, he's really controversial, but what actually had a large impact on Locke and helped provide him with the insights for his book was actually Locke's work as a physician. So Locke was a doctor. He just had a lot of time to think about shit for a while because he lived in exile for a long time. But anyways, Locke was a physician and his mentor was Thomas Sydenham. And Sydenham determined that the cause of diseases could not be determined and that nature had, quote, a power of hidden work. Power of hidden working. So as a result, he focused on the aspects of disease disease which were actually observable and could be understood, and then with whichever method was most effective, he treated them. So he basically used some kind of scientific method to help treat diseases because we can't know necessarily what they are, especially at that time. Not a lot of technology to figure it out even if you could. So you might as well go with what you can observe and he'll be more successful. Locke saw that and was influenced by it and was like, oh, well, maybe I can apply this to figuring out human knowledge, as one does, <laughs> and, <laughs> and did that. So in the first draft of the essay, Locke applies this to cause and effect, saying that we have no other knowledge of such things than what our senses provide us and is observable. We observe things that happened in the past and then believe that they'll probably happen in the future because, you know, observation, inductive reasoning. But even Locke admits that our senses cannot provide us with everything. That's just, you know, senses can deceive you. One of Descartes' famous things was that we could be being deceived by an evil demon. <laughs> that, was, that was a legitimate thing. It's in the meditations. It really, it really just, it kills the whole cogito. It's, it's kind of funny and atrocious. But yeah, um, as the essay changes through various drafts, because like this is in draft one we're talking about here, and obviously it's not going to stay that way. As it goes through various drafts, his stance on knowledge based on experience doesn't actually change that much. That section of the draft remained pretty much the same because he was so so solid in that that belief that he largely just left it. And I think I guess what's most interesting about Locke, other than obviously his atrocious writing, um, is that when I think of empiricism and philosophy, I've actually always thought about literal application of the scientific method to philosophy because that's what it's always felt like. Like if we're relying on things like our senses, well, isn't that the same as making an observation about some thing that's happening in the natural world. So empiricism is actually really just a way of sorting out what we know based on empirical evidence. And I, I think Locke actually for me is sort of the main reason for that. Like he's, he, he like literally applied that the most over any of the others. So he just sticks out as like that pinnacle of like empir- British empiricist like thinking. So in his article, uh, Locke's Natural Philosophy in Draft A of the Essay by Jonathan Walmsley, he discusses Locke's evolution, if you will, in his writing of the essay and shows the connection between his work as a, as a physician, a scientist, and his work as a philosopher, and actually how he basically applied Seidenheim's methods to disease to human knowledge. So Walmsley essentially just, it's actually this article is where I got some of that information, but really just shows like the integration between all of the things Locke was doing at the time and how they all impacted each other. Because I mean, his work as a, without working as a physician under Seidenheim, he probably wouldn't have had the same insight into applying the scientific method or what looks like the scientific method to philosophy. So Locke was a fascinating dude for that reason, and as much as our orgy-loving friend Hume made some seriously good insights, Locke, I think, provided one of the most like influential formulations of empiricism in the essay. I mean, if you take any 
philosophy class on the empiricists, you're inevitably going to talk about Locke and Hume and uh, George Berkeley, or also known as Bishop Berkeley, who I'm not going to mention today, in part because I just frankly don't think he's nearly as important. I'm just making that call since I'm the one talking. That's fine. Yeah, everyone can deal with it. But yeah, Locke is also actually a really good example, I guess, of my point about this period in general, along with Descartes, I guess, uh, and showing how science and philosophy actually really started and worked together. But this period shows the beginnings of those separate fields starting to like happen about how there's like a there's starting to be a divergence between philosophy and science and that the people all the people I guess I've mentioned so far were really like the last I'm not I'm gonna say they're the last group but I guess take that with a grain of salt they're probably not the last and I know they're not the last but they're the last like most famous clear group of of philosophers who contributed widely in both science and philosophy at a more integrated approach and they didn't think of them necessarily as separate things. So I guess that idea has some interesting implications for nowadays if we're going to bring that all back and connect it to what's going on now, because I think it's more and more the case that the humanities and the sciences seem to be separated. And I don't know that that's because the humanities and the sciences necessarily want to be. I think there is some of that, but I think ultimately some of it is just about how like society makes larger decisions based on like who should get the money to teach people. It's like in, in most cases, philosophers actually really do engage with science and math all the time. There's entire fields of philosophy dedicated to the philosophy of science and math. And it's not just to deal with like the ethical implications of doing scientific experiments. It's really just to like help provide the question for why we should like the the like the the first movement on why we should do something. I mean, you can't decide to study something unless you have a good reason for it, right? I mean, you don't just spontaneously decide that you're going to study something in physics that addresses some problem or question about the existence of the universe without first having that question about the universe. And so that's what philosophers ultimately kind of exist for. <laughs> and so they do work har harmoniously. I mean, plenty of philosophers actually do have backgrounds in, in science. I know a few that have their undergrad and master's were in science, and then they decided to do a PhD in philosophy just because like, hey, let's try it. <laughs> and it works out. But there is definitely, uh, I guess, our, our education system, the way it works now, really is not the same as it was when people like Locke and Descartes were around. Because I, I think then, I mean, if you were lucky enough to be educated, obviously, you, you got a way more like holistic approach to education. You were taught as much about the philosophers as you were taught and the historians as you were taught about the sciences because it all matters together, right? I mean, the fact that sci or natural philosophy and theoretical philosophy really just pushed each other forward and forward and forward is a sign that, like, they should go together. And yeah, I guess it's always just been something that's been, like, really nagging at me lately is just this, like, constant emphasis on things like STEM, which is important, but the, I guess, putting down of the importance of the humanities, whether it be history or philosophy or political science, which ultimately all three were the same for a long time, too. The big three humanities were, like, one discipline forever. They're kind of put on the back burner these days, which... I think is unfortunate. And obviously we're a little bit biased in that because we have degrees in humanities, <laughs> but like, I, I guess like I see the importance of, of having a more well-balanced education rather than this like constant push to specialize in something. Because I think that at some point it makes it really difficult to bridge that gap. Like it just keeps pushing them further and further away from each other. And which leads to like the elimination of things that are really important. I mean, like philosophy departments don't have a very large role in the academy anymore, which on some level, that's philosophy's own fault. But like, on the other hand, it's it's not a good thing. I mean, it's kind of seems like a weird thing to me that, you know, universities will grant doctors of philosophy, but not actually have a philosophy department. It just doesn't seem right, you know, and the fact that there's just so much revisionist history being being done, people trying to ignore good history and just like stick to their own 
weird dogmatic version of it shows that there's like a serious need for humanities education, but there's not a lot of actual demand demand. Yeah. There's not a lot of demand. And I think that like, because there's jobs immediately available in STEM, there's just more push towards, I guess, pragmatic things. But I, I guess that discounts to me anyway, that discounts the pragmatism that exists in the learning the humanities. They're pragmatic things like you should probably not think there's a Um, lot of stigma around philosophy people yeah today i I mean mean, in fairness we are assholes sometimes but well no not i don't (laughs) i don't mean about that i mean people will assume that if you get a philosophy degree you're gonna end up bearded working at starbucks or a short-haired purple-haired girl working (laughs) at a brewery that was was definitely in reference to me (laughs) thanks it's fine whatever no i mean there is though and i mean it's i would say it's the same of all the humanities though the only one that maybe gets shat on the the least is political science and then it's just expected you're going to work in the political realm but even then i mean outside of academia well it's it's funny and i apologize for political science students but Political science is really highly looked upon, but in fact, and my political science teachers have said this, it's kind of fucking useless in a lot of ways. Political science, honestly, the way I've always looked at it is like, my degree is I have a major in philosophy and a minor in history, which the joke for me has always been that that means I have a political science degree because I've learned everything that they're ever taught between my two fields because ultimately political science comes out of both of them. Like (laughs) I was, I think three classes away from getting a minor in political science but i just was that that would have meant i needed to take an extra semester of school and i didn't want to do that i probably should have but yeah most of my electives i took and my gen eds i took were in political science i do respect political science despite yeah i took classes in it too but like it's it is useful to an extent because because it helps you understand the political world. But in terms of it providing you with something, it's probably not the greatest thing to. No, I think in. actually though, like if any of this, like anything I've talked about today, sort of taught me anything, and hopefully this is something that everyone else picked up on, is that like like the re- absurdity, I guess, of all these specializations in a way. My degrees are are in like philosophy and history, which are two very like broad enough subjects that you know so much about other things as a result. But just like it leads to specializations like, you know, political science where on its own, like you're ultimately just doing other things. This whole, I think the whole like specialties are, I think they're useful. I mean, I obviously don't want to say they're not, but I think that this like emphasis on it is kind of absurd at a certain point that we need to like try and return to a more... I don't want to say return to education in the days of like Locke and Descartes because that means like no one's getting educated um, except like wealthy people, but which isn't entirely not the case now, but like even just basic education wasn't the thing. So, but I mean, in terms of just the more integrated approach to how we learn about things, I mean, there's, there is, and I'm starting to see that a little bit. There's a bit of a push for STEAM education, which is like STEM with the arts mixed in to kind of. I think it's a great idea. Yeah, I think it is because I, I think. Arts is just as equally important as science. Yeah, and I think that they don't... And I don't think that they need to be mutually exclusive. I mean, like, the reason I didn't do a science degree is because I just suck at it. But I think it's... <laughs> you and me both. But I think it's interesting, and I think it's useful. I would never deny the, the usefulness of science. And so then it bugs me when some scientists sort of deny the usefulness of things like philosophy and, and history because, I mean, to be fair, a lot of scientists view philosophers of science as just sort of, like, nitpicking and you know, asking questions that might not be that useful, but I, and as much as I rag on them too, because I mean, 
full disclosure, my background is not in epistemology. And a lot of the time, I'm honestly not sure that epistemology matters. But like, I know that it does. It just matters for maybe different reasons than the specific abstract thought experiment that I just did. I think it matters for the reason that like doing these thought experiments, you know, like Descartes did kind of actually challenges major conventions. It's like teaching you how to think critically and and see there's skills. But I just like, I think that they don't need to be mutually exclusive. I think that they should work really well together. And I, yeah, as much as I suck at science, doesn't mean that I deny the importance of it. And I'm sure that I, I, it's my hope that (laughs) just because someone might not be good at at the humanities doesn't mean that they think it's useless because it's certainly not. It's not. I mean, I keep getting people saying to me, oh, you got to have a history degree, but you're regretting that right now. And I just tell them to fuck off because I don't. History is super important because history is us as a people, as a group. It is where we we go back and learn about the people in philosophy that we learned about today. So we do, to an extent, need to look at the past in order to mm. gain an understanding of our present. Which I think was ultimately the point of doing this podcast for me anyway. Is, yeah. I mean, also to talk about interesting crap, but like, (laughs) (laughs) but like make it, make it accessible. I think like for me, the point of this is to, um, cause I've been listening to some other history podcasts lately. They've all been really interesting and good. It's just for me, like the point of doing this is to try and is really try to try and make that effort to tie in what's happened in the past with what we know now and why those things matter because they do half the shit we still learn in school comes back to Descartes at some point, like (laughs) fucking Descartes, man, too bad he had to go to Sweden and that killed him or something. He was a, he was a personal teacher for uh, Queen Christina, I think, of Sweden. Oh. And the winter, like, basically killed him. Because oh, okay. <laughs> he's a wimp. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or something, I'm not really sure. Either way, it's important to know where these ideas come from and, like, who potentially died for them, like Galileo, you know, who went to those extents. And um, I'm kind of just, like, rambling aimlessly now. But That's, that's okay. <laughs> that's what editing's for. <laughs> <laughs> well... But yeah, I think it was important to do this episode because just your background, it's good to get stuff in your background and also not just to have me rambling on for <laughs> two and a half hours. Uh, I mean, I think that like personally, I find the history of ideas really fascinating. Like it is. It it's, certainly is. It's, it's just totally different too, because you have to like methodologically just approach it in such a different way. It's it's so much different to approach the history of something like like empiricism. It's so much harder to approach that with the same method. You can't approach it with the same method that you would approach like the Korean War or a war, like a, a big like major historical event. Approaching an event is a lot different than approaching like an, a theory because theories aren't as like tangible. They're big and they're wide. Like I mean, empiricism also includes rationalism and skepticism. So it's like it becomes messy, and so it's hard to keep track of everything. And also link it all back and make those connections to make it all work together and, and understand like, well, who was there actually a first person who thought this or like who spurred this? How did this happen? It's a lot different than approaching a major event. I mean, obviously approaching major events in history and trying to talk about them is also still messy as we kind of proved with the last few episodes, but ideas are just like so much harder to give a historical account of, but like they're also super fascinating to give a historical account of, I think because they're so complex and messy and weird and it's not something we ever think about we think about the ideas, but we don't necessarily think about where they came from. That was the, I guess, my aim here. So sorry if that was horrendously boring. No, no, it's 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 important to point out why we're talking about what we're talking what about, we're talking about <laughs> and why we think it's important. It's it was interesting for me because 
my background when it comes to philosophy is not what your background is. I know more about political ideology than I do about actual philosophy. See, but political ideology, political philosophy is actual philosophy. Yeah, I know. Different but fields. <laughs> I mean, like, we're. I mean, I'm more in the political yeah. side of it. I'm not in the metaphysical or epistemological. Yes, I'm. The only the only familiarity I have with that is when we would talk about Hume or, or Hobbes or Locke. And I didn't mention Hobbes very much, but Hobbes actually was an empiricist as well. Um, oh, we'll be mentioning him. We will probably be mentioning mentioning him. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about Hobbes in a different way, but Thomas Hobbes was actually an empiricist philosopher as well as all of his uh, contributions to uh, political thought. But he did actually contribute to things like geometry and physics, um, which is really hard to think about. Is the physics world also nasty, brutish, and short? I don't know. Let's ask Hobbes. <laughs> that, yeah, eventually we'll get to Not that. Right so what, did, what, 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 was the, what was the fun fact you learned this week? I'm trying to think. No, I got nothing. No, you got nothing? <laughs> I kind of got one. It's not, again, people, we're not going to do stuff that's related to the topic. We can, but it's not, it doesn't have to be. One thing I found out is um, I think only seven countries have won the World Cup. Mm, yeah. This has always been the same people. It's Brazil, obviously, Argentina, Uruguay, Germany, Germany, uh, France, England, and there is one more. I can't think of who it is right now. Probably the Spain. Spain. That's it. Yeah. Seven countries. Fucking Although Spain. that by the time this podcast comes out, that might be different. Go Croatia. Yeah. I say that now and then they're gonna, and then France is going to win and I'm going to look like a fucking fool. That's okay. So all you FIFA fans, hope hope your team is doing well. Best of luck to Croatia and to France. I'm still rooting for Croatia. And like best of luck to Modric in his trial after World Cup. Modric? Yeah. He's on trial for perjury. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Fun fact. That's my fun fact today. <laughs> Modric, actually, most of the top Croatian stars, uh, Mandzukic and Modric, and some others are um, involved in a scandal that Croatian football. It's like it was like a corruption or something. Scandal. I don't even know if it was corruption. I can't remember. I read like read loosely about it, but they perjured themselves and there's a big trial after. You remember that football? You would probably do, or is it, it's it's not football you usually watch. It's basketball. I watch all sports. Okay, well, there's a football. There's a football scandal which to me was ridiculous, but it was called Deflate Gate. Oh yeah. And it was <laughs> for those of you who don't know, it was just. Over, I have some serious opinions on Deflate. I'm sure you do, but it was um, they were accused of deflating the ball a bit so it have better grip. And I don't know. I think that's actually not an official rule in the NFL or AFL that you need to have it fully deflated. Yeah, it is actually. Oh, it is. Okay, well, it was this huge scandal because they were deflating the ball a bit to be a better grip. But to me, I'm like, does that that doesn't make sense because? Well, the reason the reason for that is because of the weather. It was cold, so by deflating, it means that he could grip the ball better. Right, but wouldn't that benefit both teams? Um, they changed the football out. They go through like a dozen footballs throughout right. a game. So like, I mean, I, honestly, the theory, ugh, this kills me because I hate Tom Brady. Um, <laughs> so very much. Well, So, so much. Okay. Sorry if any well, of your Patriots yeah. fans. Well, I'll, I'll stop you there before 
you go off, but yeah. Basically, the flight gate makes no sense. There's no physical way it could have happened, which means I'm defending Tom Brady, which hurts my feelings. That's all you need to know. Okay. Um, <laughs> that, to me, it just seemed ridiculous, but I'm not a sports fan in any way, shape, or form. That, that's probably why. But yeah. anyway, there's two new facts for you. This Or three, I guess. New, I don't know. What's the third that I hate Tom Brady? <laughs> yeah, that, that, I'll, I'll go with that. That's but an anyway, fact. Okay. I think this is a good time to end as we're getting pretty awkward now and we were on a roll. We for have a while. reached max awkwardness. It's because I started talking. That's what, that's what happened. But, uh, I don't know. Anyway, uh, thank you guys so much. I hope, uh, definitely hope you enjoy. Go check out the Patreon. There's some interesting uh, rewards on there. Even if you're just able to donate a dollar a month, it will really help. It'll make us feel very appreciated. It'll boost our morale. Exactly. That's what really matters. Exactly. It will let us know that you. Well, even if you don't have to pay, just let us know how you feel about the podcast. Yeah, we, we still still want feedback. There's gonna be more stuff going on. Uh, I'm holding off on Museum of Controversy episodes until more Panda Story episodes are out because I think that'll help you understand it a bit more. Also, we're going to be releasing some Patreon-only content soon. Which I believe Museum of Controversy will be. Will be part of that, yes. Museum of Controversy and possibly other shows that we're, we're actually yeah. not even planning yet because we, we don't really know. But anyway. I think as well as a, a research blog, potentially some extra interesting content in written form. So, yeah, we've got some, we've got some plans for those of you who actually choose to pay, which is... Super nice of you. We appreciate it. But for those of you who can't, then you get Pan Story and it's going to be amazing. And we appreciate your support anyway. As long as you tell other people about the channel, we're, that, that will help a great amount if you pass on the word that we're doing this. Yeah, we're on, uh, we're on Podbean and iTunes, right? That's it? Yep. Yep. So we're on two main, two main, pla- two main platforms. So... Please share away. We really appreciate uh, all of the support. We also appreciate like any feedback you can give us, truly, because right now we're just going with it and hoping that people don't hate us for it. I've heard nothing but good things so far. So. Me too, but I can't tell if people are just patting my ego or not. Shout out to Silent Cypher because I know he's listening to this while he's on the road right now. But anyway, thank you guys so much. I hope you enjoyed, and we'll see you in, in a couple weeks. Yeah. Have a good one.